Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 425, it is Tuesday, April 27, 2010, and today we're going to talk about gardening again. I've got eight essential skills for you today, things that you should master to be a good survival gardener. Uh, and these are going to kind of encompass all things. So whether survival gardening is because times have gotten really tough, kind of like the Great Depression, and we're all settled into our homesteads and doing the best that we can with what we have, but there's pretty much general order, uh, and we're gardening in our backyard. There's, that's one type of survival gardening. And then the other type of survival gardening, of course, would be if uh, kind of the shit really hit the fan and uh, we're dealing with a situation where... All law and order is broken down, and maybe we have to be a little bit more covert about what we're doing. Most of the things that I'm going to give you today can be used in either one of those situations. Some are better for one, some are better for the other. Uh, But there's a lot of usage that you can get out of these techniques, especially if you'll start to think and adapt them to different situations. Uh, Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one. Back after being down and out for the count for a few days is Common Sense Prep. Their site was down. I got some emails from you guys about that. Uh, it was something their host did, something stupid their ass clown host did. And it's, it's sad that that happened to them. And I know what it's like to have your host do something stupid and mess up your website. But they're back. Back and better than ever with some really great stuff, so check their site out. Uh, Common Sense Prep will deliver to you exactly what it promises. Common Sense Preps for your day-to-day prepping needs. Uh, tactical and practical both, including some really cool stuff like uh, the Water Hog. Check out the H2O Hog. Uh, that's a really cool item that they have. And uh, check out their site. Give them some business. Small business guy that just decided he was going to do something and made it happen. Next up today is uh, ready-made resources, and I do have an announcement about them. The first being, and kind of a repeat, I think I've announced this before, but they've recently brought on a line of gardening supplies, and they have some really cool gardening supplies, and that fits well with today. The other one is I got an email from Robert yesterday uh, letting me know that they are giving away free silver this month. So how do you get free silver? What they're doing is uh, they're giving away a free silver eagle with each case of either Mountain House or Alpine Air ordered. So if you went out and ordered five cases of Mountain House, you're also going to get five ounces of silver with it, which is pretty cool. So check out Ready Mead Resources. Again, great sponsor. Glad to have them on board. Next, remember to check out our gear shop. We have cool stuff, hats, pins, uh, hats, uh, shirts, challenge coins, all kinds of cool stuff, and new stuff on the way very, very soon. In fact, I'm going to be checking on exactly how long it's going to be before that new stuff shows up today and uh, make it as fast as it possibly can be. So keep an eye out for that. Um, Last but not least, folks, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. All kinds of discounts, uh, great ebooks, over $100 value in ebooks alone. Uh, really cool stuff, all at your fingertips from your private members only area. One quick reminder, though, because I keep getting questions about this your forum account and your Member Support Brigade account are not linked to each other in any way, shape, or form. Now, you can put a little badge in your signature on the forum once you're an MSB member that says that if you'd like to. There's lots of them available on the forum that you can go ahead and get and stick in there, but they are not linked. It doesn't matter if you, if you try to, if you set up an account at the MSB and then you set up an account at the forum, unless you happen to make your username and password identical on your own, one will not work at the other place. Two separate, everything is separate. They're not even on the same domain. Alright? The MSB is at survivalpodcast.net. And the forum is at thesurvivalpodcast.com. So just to clear that up. And with that, we've knocked out the housekeeping and a little bit of uh, mass tech support there for everybody. And uh, let's get on with the main topic of today's show. The first thing that I have to talk about, because I've gotten some really bad hate emails, and I mean some bad ones. In fact, let me read you one. And this is one of the tamer ones, by the way. This comes from a guy we'll just call Hunter. What exactly is an illegal citizen? Just because someone crosses an imaginary line, they are breaking a law? You should be ashamed of yourself. 
for welcoming new laws like this. Since when did law enforcement ever follow their laws? Once again, you missed the whole point of being a libertarian and follow, politi uh, follow politician that lead you down a dark path. I will no longer be listening to your podcast. You have a lot of great information, but I cannot continue to overlook your statist mentality to get to the great things you give and provide. Talking about an ass clown, you once again prove that you're closed-minded attitude and have an angry tone. Try yoga and meditation. Try something. You have anger issues and I will no longer listen. May peace find you in your life. Here's the deal, dude. Yes, borders matter. I'm, uh, I want you to guys to hold out if this is a sticky subject for you. I'm going to give you the other side of this in a second, and I'm going to show you my pure libertarian view of this, this thing, believe it or not. But yes, the borders have a meaning. If they did not, then why not just embrace the UN and world government if the borders have no meaning? If it's just an imaginary line that doesn't matter, then why do we have private property rights among citizens? Isn't my property line on the back of my property here where I live an imaginary line on a map? Just because I put a fence there, does that change that it's just an imaginary line? There's nothing there that really says this is my property, is there? My little place up in Arkansas, my little five acres, my little place that I bought and purchased. Should anybody from anywhere just be able to go there and do whatever they want because it's only an imaginary line? That's just part of it. Let's look at it another way. That imaginary line between us and Mexico, that's what separates us from their nation and therefore their laws. So if it's just an imaginary line, should it be permeable for things like Mexico's gun laws? So should we allow Mexico's gun laws to be enforced in the United States? Should we allow Mexican law enforcement to enforce Mexico's law in the United States? Either the line means something or it does not. And when you have that purest view of anybody should be able to go anywhere, I'll ask you, does that apply to your backyard if you have a house? If you don't have a house, if you rent an apartment, does it imply, apply to the interior of your apartment? Or are those just imaginary lines? Now, as promised, my purest libertarian view. This will shock some of you. I am absolutely 100% for, under the right circumstances, open borders. I do think that human beings should be able to go anywhere they want, and the United States should be an example of that. If, if, and only if, we first enact all the rest of the great things that the libertarian platform stands for, which involves eliminating all of our social welfare programs. We get rid of those. We don't have food stamps, and we don't have welfare, and we don't have Section 8 housing, and, uh, and all the other great government-provided things at the expense of the legitimate taxpayer. And when you come here, you have to either work or starve. You don't get free government housing. Your kids don't go to free government schools uh, on the back. You don't get in-state tuition at a state uh, educational institution uh, when you're 18, 19, and you go to college uh, because you, you know, you, you know all this other, all this other crap, right? All the ways that right now, the people that come here illegally and put very little in, take a whole lot out. Now, you'll say that there's a lot of people that are already here that are citizens, and they don't put much in and they take a whole lot out. Yes, that's a problem too. So, it's when you bring illegal uh, folks into the country, and you let them do the same thing, you make the problem worse. So, it's not that the problem's not already there, it's I don't want to throw gas on the fire. The other side of this is, as long as we have the current system in place where they can get all of these, these, uh, these, these governmental benefits, they're held into a life of poverty. These programs do not make people successful. They make them into failures. They are a failure. And if you're a libertarian, I should be speaking right up your alley right now. So what we're doing under our current system is allowing people to come in here illegally, take part in the worst part of our society, and get very little of the best part of our society. And under those situations, that's a law that needs to be enforced to keep them out. Because if we kept them out, the first thing we would do is begin to choke off the people that are really responsible for this, which are the corporations that knowingly employ these people. And I don't have a problem with them being employed. I have a problem with the fact that they utilize the fact that they're here illegally to get away with their abuse. We have these people coming here and living in slums. They would be, some of them would be much better off if they were still in Mexico from a living condition standpoint. And it's not just Mexico that's a problem. There's plenty of countries that people come to here illegally. So, you want open borders? Fine. Choke off all the crap. Stop charging me. But don't ever tell me 
The line is just imaginary. Because if the line between nations is an imaginary line, and a nation doesn't have a right to sovereignty as a nation, that you have a right to sovereignty as an individual over your private property. And I know some of you don't want to answer that question, or you want to try to rationalize it away, but it can't be rationalized away. You either do or you don't. And personal property stuff that we're going to be talking about here as we transition. So I had to follow up on that because of the anger that's out there that I would dare to support this law in Arizona. Do I think this law in Arizona is a perfect law? No. I think it might lead to eventual true reform. Except I'm not real hopeful for that. Because you know what reform means to the federal government. It means amnesty. And I'm definitely not for amnesty. Not unless you fix all the underlying problems first, which to me are not about employers that employ these people. They're about the fact that we've created a system of dependency in this country. And as long as we have that system of dependency, bringing more people in to partake in dependency strengthens government. And libertarians, there's your reason to oppose illegal immigration. 100%. The act of bringing illegal labor in and not enforcing that law is empowering your government. It's strengthening your government. It's making your government stronger. Enforcing the border does not lead to tyranny. Allowing it to flow openly in its current situation is creating tyranny every day. And you just don't see it. Because the concept that humans should be able to go where they choose and form relationships that they choose is a great concept. But when you add all the social welfare crap to it, it breaks down into total discord. All right. Let's move on from there, and let's get into a much happier subject. Let's talk about survival gardening. Before I talk about the techniques I want to talk to you about today, let's talk about what a survival garden actually means. And as I said in the beginning, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean the shit has hit the fan. If the food doesn't grow, we don't eat. And that sucks. And that's not the survival gardening I ever hoped to be in, but I know what to do if we ever get into that situation. Survival gardening can be we have decided that we're going to produce enough for ourselves, that we have enough autonomy and sovereignty as individuals, that we don't need the systems anymore, and we're going to opt out of some portion of the systems to create a degree of independence. That's the total other end of the spectrum. right? And, and even you know the, the hippie freaks and sandals did... Uh, that are out smoking weed and, and have their little gardens and stuff, they're doing the same thing, folks. And I'm, I'm cool with them. They can do whatever they want as long as I can do whatever I want. We can all have freedom and liberty. But those are the two spectrums from it's the end of the world as we know it to I just want more freedom in my life. And everything in there to me is a form of survival gardening. And then there's the, the middle, which I think may be the most practical. And it, I think it requires that you put the systems in place now and create the independence now so that you can have it if you get to the middle. And what the middle is, is where we're in something like the Great Depression. And those of you that think we're in that now, you're wrong. Because I've talked to my grandparents an awful lot about what the Great Depression was like. And I even talked to uh, my great-grandfather about what the Depression was like, who was the one who brought, the one that brought my, my fraternal grandfather here. Uh, who had a uh, had to speak in Ukrainian through a voice box and be translated. But I do remember some of those conversations with him as a very young boy and hearing what it was like, not just during the Great Depression, but when they first got to the United States. Uh, in, in, in the, uh, I think it was 1916 or 1917 when my family first got here. And um, it's not like today. It's nothing like today. The financial problems that we have today make are, 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 are they would have considered this the most one of the most prosperous times in history if you took them from then till now. So what our lesson there is not that ah, it's not as bad as we think it is. Our lesson is there that we can get a lot worse, and there could come a time where you know what we don't have rioting in the streets at least a lot, you know nonstop large scale rioting. We don't have the cities burning. We don't have complete breakdown of law enforcement. We don't have complete breakdown of society. Some portion of the society is still working. The money still works something, but it's a hell of a lot worse than now. And it's really tough. And there's a survival gardening there to be able to feed yourselves. And that's what a lot of people did during the Depression. Uh, my family, very much so. And it's where a lot of what I learned about gardening came from. And I'll tell you this, too. A lot of what I learned as a child about gardening, I've now learned better ways. 
because there were things that we did that were very conventional. Most people during the Depression gardened the way that farmers farm on a small scale. So they had nice straight rows, and they had a bed of potatoes, they had a bed of carrots, they had a bed of cucumbers, they had a bed of tomatoes, they had a bed of peppers, they had a bed of broccoli, just like that. Basically, small-scale monoculture. There was a lot of variety, but each bed was only one thing. And when you're trying to maximize production on some levels, that seems to make a lot of sense. Because, you know, look at it this way. If I plant a row of beans and it's time to pick beans, I can take a little bench out to my row, sit down on one side, pick until I don't find any more beans, move the bench a couple feet, pick again. And if I have a 20-foot row of beans and I do that, well, it's a very, um, let's say, productive process. And I move the bench to the other side and go back down the other side. I come up with a bucket of beans. I set aside some for dinner tonight. And I set aside some to be canned or stored in whatever way I'm going to do that. So that's why people did that back then. But I've learned better ways. I really have. Especially over the past three and four years as I've dug deeper into uh, different techniques. And I'm going to share some of those with you today and how they adapt to uh, survival gardening. The first one that I learned, and this is something that we would have never done when I was a kid in Pennsylvania. Never. It's called succession planning. It's just something that we never even thought to do. It's so obvious. So let's, let's start, out, start out with uh, with what succession is. It's not secession, it's succession. Succession is uh, the passing from one to another is the best way that I can describe it. So the succession of the seasons would be uh, a perfect example. Spring becomes summer, summer becomes fall, fall becomes winter. But what we lose when we break the seasons into four seasons is the transitional period. Right now we're at a period in Texas, and I know some of you will be angry to hear this because you're still in winter as far as you're concerned, but I would call this, it's not spring and it's not summer. It's an overlap between the two where things begin to change slowly and things begin to transition. It's not hot enough to call it summer yet. It's too warm to call it spring here. Our spring's very, very short here, and sometimes it begins in January. Um, that is that overlap is an opportunity if you take it and apply it to your plantings. Here's an example. I posted a video yesterday. If you haven't watched it yet, you should watch it. It's a slideshow of my garden thus far. One of the things that I show in there is I have this huge clump of spinach. Right? It's about two square feet of spinach, and it's been producing since November. And it's still producing, and today is, what, April April 27th. So it's been producing for, let's, let's say, November it was too small. So December, January, February, March, eight, five months of production out of this clump of spinach. It is about to go. You cannot do this forever. And as the heat comes, eventually it's going to start sending up those centerpieces and go to seed. And I don't need any seed from it. So when it gets into that state and the heat just starts to wilt it too much, I'm going to pull it up. Now, in my Pennsylvania garden with my my grandparents, they would have used that spinach until its last legs were given out, then pulled it out, and then planted something else. It's not what I did. I did succession planting. What I did is I, I took some of the spinach from the center, and I cleared it out enough to allow sun in. And I dug a little hole right in the middle of the patch of spinach. And into that hole I placed a pepper plant, a jalapeno pepper plant. Now, that jalapeno pepper plant is surrounded by the spinach, but it's getting enough sunlight. Any pests that are being drawn to that area are pests that are mostly interested in the spinach, not the pepper plant. The pepper plant, in fact, if you walked by it, you might not even see it. I had to spread it apart when I took the still shot that's part of the slideshow. So what happens now is that pepper's getting a great start. It's putting down roots. It's, it's finding the nutrients that are in the soil. And it's growing and it's strengthening. And when the spinach is ready to be done away with, I'll just go in there and cut it all to the ground, flat level it off and mulch over top of the stumps. The roots will sit in the ground and begin to rot. The roots from the pepper plant will find those carbon pathways created by the roots, and the pepper will take over, just like going from spring to summer, we're going from spinach to pepper. And we're utilizing the space at the same time. While the, while the spinach is large, the pepper's growth rate is relatively slow this time of year. Neither one really needs the entire space. The spinach is kind of, it's done with its rapid growth. The pepper is just beginning its strengthening period before it goes into rapid growth. So there's a place for those two things to be shared. Another thing that you can see in the video that I did is, where I did this in a little bit different of a way with peas. I've got a bed. 
The whole center is planted with peas. Not the edges, not the sides, not for a trellis, but down the center I have two rows of peas. Classic monoculture look to it. And they are a low-growing pea that only grows about two feet tall. They need very little support. I grew two rows. When the rows got to about a foot and a half high, I pushed mulch in. I formed them together so they interlocked with each other. They formed their own support. The only other thing supporting them is about four of those little thin bamboo stakes, just so that when it rains, they don't fall over. On the front side, I planted peppers. And on the back side, I planted tomatoes and beans. And, what'll, and, and that basically is, you know, eight square feet on the front, eight square feet on the back, and this is a three-foot wide bed. So there's eight square feet in the center being occupied by this line of beans, or peas. Peas, short-season crop. They were planted in January. They're just starting to produce now. They'll produce heavily for about three weeks, and the heat will take over, and they will die. By that time, I'll go through, I'll cut the peas out to the ground, right? So I won't yank them out, I'll cut them off at the base. Inside the ground is their root system, literally covered. And I should probably pull one out and show this to you. Covered in little tiny granules of bacteria colonies that are ripe with nitrogen in the soil. That nitrogen will permeate through the soil. It will feed the peppers to the front and the tomatoes and beans to the rear. The beans add more nitrogen. And when those, when those peas are gone, I'll come in in the center and I plant eight new plants, one in each square foot of a variety of plants. So now, the peas are actually sheltering the young peppers and the young tomatoes. They're on the, the tomatoes are on the back side where the sun hits in the morning. So the tomatoes are getting morning sun. The peppers are getting afternoon sun. Neither one's getting it full throughout the day while they strengthen. So instead of hardening off my plants somewhere uh, in pots, I was actually able to do a lot of the hardening and much better hardening in the ground, maximize the use of the space, fertilize the soil, all because I'm not afraid to plant things a little bit too close because right now we've got one big plant about to go away and a little plant that doesn't need much space yet. Those are classic examples of succession planting. And you can do that anywhere, whether it's in a bed or whether it's a gorilla garden out in the woods. You can do the same things. In fact, they're very, very effective ways to go. The next thing that, I, and this is one of the things that when I look back, I go, why didn't we do this? Trellising. I used to go out for the tomato plants. Every year for my grandfather and go out into the woods, there was plenty of resources there with a, with a hatchet, and I would come back with, we grew about 16 tomato plants, and I would come back with 16 about 8 foot long sapling stakes. And I would put those stakes in the ground, and I would, at about 2 feet in, so I'd have a 6 foot high stake sticking out of the ground, and I would have to tie tomatoes up all year long. And every, every couple of weeks, I'd have to go down there and retie the tomatoes as they grew taller and taller, cut some of the suckers off, and we'd get into big harvest, huge amounts of tomatoes out of those 16 plants. And then those stakes really would be kind of rotted at the bottom for being underground. So I would take them all and make a big bonfire out of them in the fall after the harvest. And me and my buddies would sit out in the back of the house and, and uh, when we were younger, drink some sodas and tell lies about girls. And as we got a little older, sneak some beer and tell some lies about girls. So it was a great experience, but it was a waste of resources, and it was a lot of work. Where what I would do now is put in a trellis along one side of the row and, and put uh, netting in there and weave the tomatoes into the netting. Very, very simple. You can see how I've done that in my, uh, my video slideshow again that I, I recommend you take a look at. Trellising is so effective. The other thing that we did, we had this whole row, because my grandmother was big on making cucumbers and chow-chow relish and all this other stuff because it kept well. So we had a whole row that was nothing but cucumbers. And these cucumbers ate every bit of space in the row because cucumbers are a vining plant. So I'd go and I'd plant all these hills every three feet all the way down this row. It was a long row. And my grandmother would go down there once they started producing, and she'd pick about two five-gallon buckets uh, in volume. I don't think they were five-gallon buckets. These old steel buckets she had. Uh, but about two five-gallon buckets worth of cucumbers, probably every third day once they went into production. And she'd just do that every day and put these things up as pickles and other uh, other forms and, and you know fresh eating as well and I look at that and I, I today I look at it and I see all that wasted space all that ground space that could have been used because now I trellis my cucumbers and that means they only need a fraction of the dirt space and that all the rest of that dirt space is open up things so trellising definitely something you need to master and utilize the next one is kind of going off the conventional, and that's gorilla gardening. I think everybody should do at least a little bit of gorilla gardening. Get out there and find a place you can plant something and see what happens. In fact, there's a great video out there by a guy named Big John Lipscomb, uh, who does a, a radio show that I actually was on as a guest. And he has this video where he's doing gorilla gardening on a, on a really high level. He's going around in the woods, and he's setting up all these different annual plantings. 
little bit of fertilizer, a little bucket, a little bit of digging, creating natural trellises, creating natural water harvesting and things like that. I think it's an outstanding video, and I think you can learn a lot by watching it, and I'd recommend that you do watch it about 20, 25 minutes long. I'm not saying everything he, do, he does is what I would do, but I am saying that you can learn a lot by watching techniques that another person has perfected and then adapting them and adding to them and making them your own. So watch every technique you can find. It's not that, you know, some people say, well, Jack, I love your method because it's not my method. Nothing I do in my garden or on my property is my method. These methods are all ancient. They all predate just about any part of, of history that we typically would read about. They are the foundations of the agriculture that's allowed human beings to move from hunter-gatherers to civilized people that stay put. And they are rooted in things done by the Native Americans, the natives to the South American continent, to the, the, the cave peoples that eventually started to form agriculture and, and settle down in Europe and in, in the Far East and in Africa. All of these techniques have existed forever. They existed before somebody did them. Because nature showed us how. A trellis is not something that I invented or, you know, the way I build my trellises I actually got from a book called Square Foot Gardening by Mel Bartholomew. Don't do everything Mel says. Love his trellises, though. Great way to do it. But Mel didn't invent a trellis. There are trellises forever. You go back into the vineyards of old when, uh, you know, wine was a big-time commodity, when it, was a, when it was a currency. And you had these huge vineyards all over uh, France and Europe. And then they were doing trellises hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago. In the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago, there were vineyards being grown on trellises. Those people didn't invent the trellis. Nature invented the trellis. You want to see it? Go to Woodlands. When you get to Woodlands, take a look at the edge of a forest and look for vines. And you'll see trees, either dead or living, or bushes, either dead or living. And you will see things in the forest growing up the trellis. And all man did was look at that and go, aha, nature has shown us a trellis. Let us make a trellis that is more suited to man. So understand that as you're, as you're learning. Like there's no reason that in like everything people do, we have these factions and camps, right? We have like, if you're an American car guy, you got the Dodge camp, you got the Chevy camp, you got the Ford camp, right? And one's always better than the trucks the same way, Dodge, Chevy, Ford, right? Or you, you know, if you're into foreign vehicles, then it's the Toyota, right? That's the truck or the Nissan Titan or whatever. We have these factions. We do that with authors. You know, one person gravitates to uh, this particular author or that particular author. With gardening and with agriculture, there's no need for that. In fact, it's very limiting to do that. Because what happens is you turn away very effective techniques, at the expense of loyalty to a concept. And the person that came up with the concept, or even formal, not even nobody, again, nobody came up with the concept, nobody formalized the concept, wouldn't want you to. They just want you to take what they have and add to it. It's like mixed martial arts. You know, instead of being dedicated to Taekwondo, or dedicated to Jiu-Jitsu, or Aikido, or Aikido, or the traditional karate, or, or anything like that, or boxing, Mixed martial artists take the best that they can learn from all these different techniques and combine them together to make a more complete fighting style than any one purist style. That's how agriculture should be. So guerrilla gardening, learn as much as you can about it. Check out John's video. My one caveat to what he shows you is he does a lot with annual planting, so planting tomatoes, beans, radishes, uh, stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. I would do that too, but I would be working on perennials. And I would specifically be working on native perennials. I would look for things that grow, find where they're already growing, and enhance them. So if I find a place where blueberries naturally grow, I may come in there and establish a good bed of uh, low-growing moss beneath the blueberry plants just by cutting it away from one place, putting in another, putting, moving it, and placing it into the ground. And then I may come in with some type of, of low-growing planting that grows lower than the blueberries and plant that on the outskirts of the blueberry patch. What does that do? It creates shade. Shade allows the moss to be sustainable because it has shade both from the blueberry plants and from the additional planting of whatever else I can find the area to do that with. Because of that, the moss stays there as a natural mulch which keeps a lot more moisture in the ground than it does anywhere else, which gives me better growth and better production out of my blueberries.
So that's a guerrilla gardening technique that didn't actually involve really planning much of anything. It involves taking an existing system and tweaking it to make it better. And this is a lot of what the Native Americans did. A lot of the Native Americas, uh, Americans growing wasn't so much that they would go out and create uh, a place, which they did. They built all different types of gardens. There's plenty of different types of Native American gardens we can look at for examples. But the other thing that they did is they would find something like out in the desert southwestern California, uh, a plant like manzanito, which is the, the little apple, basically. And they would go out there and they would cultivate plants around that apple tree and create rain catchment around that apple tree to provide those little apple. And they're like berries. They're really not apples. Manzanto is uh, Spanish for apple. Manzanito would be a small apple, tiny apple. So these taste like apples, but they're more like berries. But that's just one example. In fact, all throughout, like the the California, the Cal, you know, kind of, it's not really the desert. It's not really a temperate climate. It's kind of that transitional, that secession, that edge where these native peoples lived, they, they have discovered that a lot of these natural planting systems are slowly beginning to break down after hundreds of years of not being tended, that they needed very little tweaking, but the native people used to do this, and now they're not there to do it anymore. So that's my, you know, my version of survival gardening, is making sure you take the annual plantings that you're doing here and there, but putting as much perennial into that as well, specifically native perennials, and optimizing their systems for growth, moving them around, etc. The next one I want to talk about briefly is companion planting, and I think it may be the most important and overlooked component of uh, most people's backyard gardens. I no longer have patches of anything other than like I did with the beans because, or the peas because that just made sense to do that. And, and even with that, I ha obviously had things planted around them. The more diversity that you bring to a system, generally the better results you're going to get. I've even gotten out of, uh, for a while I was really big into companion planting where I got into, hey, if you plant this plant, make sure you plant these two or three plants with it. I do some of that still. I follow some basic rules, and there are certain things that always seem to be beneficial. Garlic, onion, marigold, basil, uh, you can't have too, uh, parsley. Uh, you can't have too much of any of that. I mean, you plant that stuff anywhere that it'll grow, any wasted space, fill it in with one of those. You, uh, nasturtiums, they're a short-term plant, but they provide an edible flower, they have a, a repellent effect, they bring in pollinating insects, and they're beautiful. These Calendula, uh, also known as pot marigold, edible blossoms, edible plant, medicinal value, uh, brings in pollinating insects and predators. So there's certain things that I always kind of try to make sure are in part of my companion planting. But basically what I do now is anything that I have available, I just plant it. And I just observe it. And if it grows good, then I don't worry about it. That means that it was fine to plant it there. If I see any kind of a negative effect on any of the surrounding plantings, I, I, I really am more concerned with, is there anything that I separate now? And, and some of the stuff I just gave you has to be separated. Like, for instance, beans and peas generally do not do well planted near onions and garlic. And what I mean by near is I mean in, in direct root proximity. So if you have like two feet away from your beans, you have onions, that's not a problem. But if you interplant onions with your beans, generally you don't get the best of results. So I don't do that. Whereas if you plant onions in with your tomatoes, uh, it doesn't harm the tomatoes at all. In fact, it provides a repellent effect from the onions for pests. So, for instance, I have a new guild that I'm experimenting with this year, and a guild is companion planting at a permaculture level, where you specifically assemble plantings to create what they call this guild. So my guild for my tomatoes are, I have four black crim tomatoes. In between each tomato are red onion. In front of the tomatoes, and kind of interspaced between them, are French marigolds, uh, accompanied by uh, some basil, some St. John's wort, and some curry. And that whole guild works together to both attract beneficials and repel uh, pests. And it seems to be doing very, very well uh, this year. There's some classic pairings there, tomatoes with basil. Um, there's some unusual things there. St. John's wort and curry are generally not things that you would plant with tomatoes. I planted them because I know they're going to flower, and they'll bring in lots of pollinating and beneficial insects and because they have no negative effect on a tomato. So one of the big things with companion planting is just get as diverse as you can. The more you do that, the more space you'll find. You'll start to realize this plant doesn't grow very large. Uh, I can fit that, even though I have, maybe if I'm doing square foot gardening, I can fit an extra plant in between these four squares. There's plenty of room for it based on what's there. I can fit two or three or even more extra plants in between these squares. 
you'll you'll start doing it with your container gardening. You'll start doing it everywhere. Um, you'll start doing it with things like I have some peach plant uh, peach trees, patio peaches and pots. Well, I've planted nasturtiums and marigolds with those. Why not? The space is there. They're not going to harm the tree. If, if anything, they're going to help support it. Uh, another thing that I did with companion planting this year, kind of an odd thing. I have some containers. I have two that are brand new uh, fig trees this year and two that are brand new pomegranates this year. The main reason they're in containers is because we're going to move. And when we move, I want to take them with us. I don't want them planted in the ground here. I want them planted in the ground of an Arkansas. So I had a bunch of leftover peas for my pea planting. The uh, fig trees and the pomegranates early in the year had no leaves on them. They weren't even started yet. They were just sitting out there in the sun waiting for their time to start sprouting. So I took all the extra peas and I divided them up and I planted them evenly between the four containers. I let the peas grow right to the point where they started to blossom. Then I cut them off at the ground, leaving all that nitrogen in the soil, even more than if I would have let them produce, blossom, and, and start to make peas. I took the, uh, the, the, the foliage from the peas, chopped them up, and mixed them into the soil to provide even more nitrogen. So what happened was the peas protected the young plants from getting too much sun as they were just beginning to sprout their first season. Uh, the plant, the uh, the tree, you know, trunks provided climbing for the peas until they got up to the size that I wanted them, uh, without any additional support. The foliage from the peas got made back into soil inside the container, so I won't have to fertilize any of those four pots this year between the uh, the green part of the peas and the uh, nitrogen that they left in the soil. So it's a great symbiotic relationship. So it's companion planting, companion planting merged with container plant, container planting. Container planting is the next thing I really think you need to think about learning and maximizing. One, it maximizes space. You probably have a lot of hard spaces in your uh, on your property where you can't really kind of grow things because there's no dirt there. Well, you put a container there, all of a sudden it opens up that option. The other thing about containers is they let you cheat the system, even without a greenhouse. Last year, not this last winter, but the winter before, as we moved into spring, I lost my greenhouse, and it was kind of uh, kind of a bummer. Uh, we had a really bad storm, winds in excess of 70 miles an hour, and it was like one of these tent-style greenhouses, and it just it really didn't damage it that bad, but what happened is it broke and it just blew this huge hole in it when it fell down on its own poles and it, it wasn't worth fixing. And I decided not to grow, build one this year permanently because, again, we're moving. So we'll do our construction at a different location. So no greenhouse this year. So I want to start really start. I don't just mean start little plants. I mean I want to get growth out of tomatoes and peppers early. But I'm worried about early frost. So what do I do? I take my plants. I put them in the great big containers. I have one with peppers. I have three with tomatoes and a bunch of other things. A bunch of companion planting going on. Marigolds, nasturtiums, onion, basil, tarragon, arugula. All these things are in just four containers with tomatoes and peppers. Uh, what else is in there? Uh, Persian cress. All kinds of great stuff. Red orach. Red amaranth. Now, obviously, the amaranth and the orach, I won't like grow to full size, but they'll grow to a six inches tall. We'll cut them off. We'll use them as bracing uh, herbs, or we'll use them as uh, stuff for salads. All that's in containers. But here's what happened. Everything was beautiful. Everything was growing. Things were really getting off. We had a great early spring come in. There was no frost. And then we got 10 inches of snow and temperatures in the 20s later in the year than usually happens here, mid-March. So what did I do? I went outside, got these four giant containers, laid some towels down on the kitchen floor the day before this event was forecasted, brought them into the house, waited for the snow to come, waited for the sun to go, uh, the snow to go. Plants obviously weren't that happy about being in that environment, but they made it through just fine. And as soon as the days were warm, I put them out. We had a couple nights that went into freezing, put them out in the morning, take them in in the evening, did that for two or three days. And now I have peppers as big as my fist on the pepper plants, and the tomatoes are all uh, cherry tomatoes, and I have hundreds of, they're green still, but hundreds of tomatoes already set just in these three pots because I got that early start with container guards. So it's a lot more flexible than maximizing space or only doing it because you only have a patio or things like that. Again, let's say that in the summertime it starts to get too hot. And my, uh, my, my containers that have peppers in them, and I have a lot, I just did a bunch this weekend, even now I'm adding more containers. Uh, and it gets really too hot, and they, they start to suffer a little bit from the heat, and it would be nice to put them in a place where they got a little less direct sunlight. All we have to do is move the containers. Once they're planted in the ground, it is what it is. 
These are things to think about. It's, it's why you want to do something like add container gardening to your skill set. It will also allow you, if you ever end up having to leave, to take some of your growth with you if you have the ability to do that. Now, if you have to do a rapid bug out, throwing a couple giant containers in with your stuff probably isn't a good idea. Probably don't have the ability to do that. But if you have the, a, a, like a bug out situation where, let's say you have some rural property, nice little bug out location sort of stocked up, and we start to have that declining spiral where maybe you can take a trip or two because you're jumping before other people. You have something that can go with you. Or if you move because you have to or want to, you can take something with you. Containers do that. Nothing else does. That's why it belongs on the skill set that you develop. You also get perfect soil with a container. Go buy it. Don't be cheap. Buy good quality organic potting soil. Dump it in there. Give it a little bit of organic fertilizer and compost on top of that. You'll get great results. You'll get great drainage. You don't have to prepare anything. Absolutely, positively one of the great skills to develop. The next one I, I, I put together, it's really two different skills that I put them together for today's show, and that's sheet mulching and rough mulching. And, and sheet mulching is pretty easy to understand. You take any good quality mulch, a fine mulch, from wood chippings to leaf shreddings to straw, anything like that, and you completely cover all the ground where plants are not growing. And I get questions about sheet mulching all the time. Well, Jack, if I plant little tiny seeds like amaranth or, or uh, lettuce or something like that, I can't sheet mulch over that. It won't come up through it. It might and it might not, depending on what you're planting. Okay? So if you're planting, let's say, uh, you're, if, if you're planting lettuce and you were sheet mulching with finely chipped um, oak leaf, uh, it'll have no problem. If it can move dirt out of the way, it can move a few oak leaves out of the way. Now, putting four inches of it down, obviously you don't want to do that. When I plant corn, what I generally do is I plant my corn, and as soon as the corn starts to spike through this, so I do, I clear all the mulch off. And I do plant corn in a large group, not just two or three plants, because it just grows better that way. So I'm going to plant a whole bed. So what I do is I clear all the mulch off and I reserve it. I uh, prepare my soil, add a little bit of soil amendments, maybe some uh, natural fertilizer. And with corn, a lot of natural fertilizer. I use uh, uh, a good chicken uh, poultry manure-based fertilizer and usually some blood meal for some high nitrogen add uh, to that as well. So I till, and I don't till the soil deep. I, 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 do, I do pretty much what I consider no-till. So basically I just mix in the top two inches of soil to make sure that all that new organic matter and all that new fertilizer gets worked into the soil. I make my spots, my, my rows or my drills. Drills are little holes, just a little poke with a stick. So that's a drill. Uh, a, a row would be, or a furrow would be where you take a hoe and you make kind of an opening. And I fill that in with all my corn, and I plant much more densely than recommended. I plant only about four inches apart uh, in each row, and then I plant each row only about six inches apart. And at each point, I put two to three seeds of corn in now. Then I don't backfill. I get compost, fresh compost, and I cover over the corn with compost or any other crop. You could do this with lettuce. You could do this with little seeds, big seeds. It doesn't matter. I always backfill my, my furrows or my drills now with pure compost. I get it in a bucket. I just sprinkle it over there, and I pack it down very, very lightly. My compost is highly uh, moisture absorbent, and it keeps the soil from getting that glazed over thing that prevents good germination. I water it frequently until we get sprouting. If it's going to be a tough plant like corn, either as soon as it sprouts or sometimes before, I put a very thin layer of mulch over everything. Once it starts to come up and it's, a, it's a, you know, a couple inches high, then you just go back and fill the mulch in around the growing plants. Another way to do this, let's say you're doing square foot gardening and you're planting uh, uh, lettuce, and you're going to direct sow lettuce. I prefer to start seeds in pots with lettuce, but you're going to direct sow it. Fine. Take your square foot, have it sheet mulched, about two inches deep. Pull back about a 50 cent piece size hole, and you do four lettuce plants to square foot by the square foot method. For small plants, you're going to cut off, and or one center if you're going to let it grow large and harvest it continuously. It's up to you how you want to do that, whether you want variety or size. And uh, go ahead and just you know make about an eighth inch deep hole into the soil in each one of the little four square spots you the four uh, four divots you've made in your in your mulch. Drop your seeds in there, sprinkle a little compost down inside of each one, and water it. Plants will come up, they'll grow right up through that little hole, they'll be nicely protected around it. Once they get high enough, just push the mulch in around. 
you usually what will happen is once they're about two inches high, you'll fill that hole that you've created in the mulch bed uh, about halfway. And when they get another inch or two high, you fill it the rest of the way so it's level with the rest of the bed. Really, really simple. But sheet mulch, sheet mulch everything, protect your soil. There's no place in nature where a system is productive and you look down and see dirt, you see leaves, you see debris, right? You see rough mulch, you see fine mulch, you see uh, uh, ground cover, but you never see empty dirt because as soon as you have dirt open, you get erosion. So sheet mulching, rough mulching is not for your garden beds. It's further out. If you're in permaculture, it's zone three and four, right? And, it, and even some of zone two. And it's where you just take branches and leaves and anything you can find from your natural system. And you maybe break it up a little bit, but you don't shred it. It's not fine. It's just thrown down. And that's a great component of guerrilla gardening. So one of the things you'll see John do in his video, if you watch it, is to go and plant some tomatoes. And he just covers the ground with all kinds of rough mulch. But the tomatoes are in this little opening pocket in the center of it. And he puts a few dead branches over the tomatoes, which act as a trellis. The tomatoes grow up, and then they spill over and grow out to the side, the way they would naturally if they weren't in our perfect garden with our perfect trellis. So it's important that you understand that mulch is the most important thing you can do to ensure your success. But yes, it does have some limitations. If you, yes, you're right. And I get these emails when people ask me this. If you take a little tiny lettuce seed and you cover it with two inches of rough cypress mulch, it won't make its way through there. But you know what? Uh, a good quality green bean will. I wouldn't go with two inches, but an inch. You can mulch right over top of it. In fact, when I plant beans, what I've done this year, and I've gotten great results from it, I pull back the mulch, I push the bean, it's, you can still see it. I push the bean into the soil, not under the soil, until it's all like flush. You can still see the top of it. I just throw the mulch over it. It's easier for that bean to get through the mulch than it is through dirt. Right? So sheet mulching and rough mulching. The next one is water harvesting. And I'm not so much here talking about water harvesting in aspects like a rain barrel or a pond. Uh, those are good, too, and I, I do consider them valuable skills, and they're things you should do, but they're not direct gardening skills. They're indirect gardening skills. I harvest the water, and then I move it to my garden, right? So it's a two-step process. I'm talking about what I would call direct water harvesting and direct water conservation methodologies. Classic example in permaculture is swale, or ditch on contour. Instead of making everything in a straight line, we come out and we find the exact level surface of the earth. And even when you look at land, you think it's dead flat. It's not. There's always slopes. There's always contours. So we find the contour. We put a ditch in that's 100% level. And at one end or both ends, we allow a perfectly level overflow. So it's like a level sill is what they call it. So if the ditch overflows, the water dissipates very, very gently. And the water that's remaining in that ditch soaks into the soil and irrigates and, and saturates the land on the downhill side of that swale. And you can grow anything you want in there, even in relatively very dry areas with that type of swelling, especially when accompanied with rough and or sheet mulching. So that's where you combine these two things. So that's one. Another one that's really easy, though, is depression uh, creation in your garden bed. So you plant a tomato. Let's say you're doing square foot gardening, or even if you're not doing square foot, it doesn't matter. For an area of about, you know, eight inches saucer-shaped around the size of your tomato, you just, once you get the plant in and established, you just basically form a bowl in the soil so that when any water, either manually or from rain, is applied to that area, it will collect in that bowl and slowly permeate instead of just running away. That's one way to do it. In John's video, what you'll see him do is at certain locations where there's like a, like a hard footpath, and you can see a clear place where water has created kind of an erosion ditch where it's created its own little natural channel that water flows. He'll take that and he'll divert that water flow into a depression that he'll create. So he'll dig a secondary ditch, put up some rocks, make that water deflect. And when it rains, that water's going to come down. There's just like a little kid playing in a ditch, right? That water flows off in another direction. And then you create a low spot for that water to flow to. You do your plantings there, and you get a very moist environment, even if you don't get there very often. So it's anything from creating... Uh, landscapes in your backyard to using landscaping and water control in guerrilla gardening. 
all these things. And again, remember what I said earlier. These techniques aren't my techniques. They're not John Lipscomb's techniques. They're not Bill Mollison's techniques. They're not Bell Bartholomew's techniques. These are simply things that have been around since the dawn of agriculture that we're rediscovering and reapplying now. And the bigger thing that we're doing, and this is the thing, like did my grandparents, who didn't do most of the things I'm telling you about today, we didn't do. Was their gardening unproductive? No, it was some of the most productive gardening that you'll ever see in your life. You, you could never tell my grandmother she was doing anything wrong. Because she would take you in the fall down into the cellar and show you ten shelves that were two and a half feet deep that ran from one end of the cellar to the other, completely stacked with stuff that she had canned out of the garden. And she'd tell you, you know what, if we had to, we could live on that until the fall next year. It would be kind of bland and boring. We'll end up giving half of this away through the winter. This is more than we could ever use. And we got out of that little plot down there, so how could we be doing anything wrong? She wasn't wrong. They just worked harder than they had to. Why? Because they learn a certain way and they do it. Old story. I'll tell you real quick as we get ready to harvest up today. Uh, harvest up. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking that way. As we get ready to wrap up today. There's this old story. I heard this from a, from a preacher at a church, I believe, the first time I heard it. And it, what it is, is it's about communication. And it says, uh, there's a husband one day, and his wife makes a pot roast. And uh, she brings it out and puts it on the table with the potatoes and carrots and everything. And he just looks at it, and it's in two pieces. There's a small piece, and there's a big piece. And um, he says, honey, I, I love your pot roast. I'm not putting you down, but I've always wondered, why do you cut the small end off the pot roast? And she says, I, I really don't know. It's just what my mother always did. So he says, after we eat, can we call her and ask her why? I mean, again, I'm up it down. I just want to know. She goes, you know, it's, I've never really thought about it. I'd like to know, too. So they call mom up. And mom says, I, I don't know. That's the way your grandmother did it. So this is, you know, the age of three-way calling. So mom says, hold on, I'll three-way grandma. And they ring, and grandma answers the phone and says, hello? And she says, uh, Mom, this is uh, it's your daughter, and I've got you know your granddaughter on the line, and we were just talking about your pot roast. She goes, oh, I love pot roast. He goes, okay, Mom, I have a question, though. Why did you always cut the end off the pot roast? She goes, oh, our pan wasn't big enough for the pot roast to fit in it. <laughs> okay? So you see something done a certain way, but you don't even know why, but then it just becomes a tradition. And that's what happens with a lot of agricultural traditions because everybody always grew perfectly straight rows and, you know, put one plant in one and one plant in the next and another plant in another. That's what everybody else always does. So you stop asking questions. How can, it must be good because it works. You stop asking, how can I do it better? When we start looking today and we have so much information sharing on the Internet and television and radio and podcasts, what we start to realize is we can take the very best components of all these things and combine them together. Do I do some square foot gardening? Yes. Does that mean that I'll have a row of peas that go all the way from one end of a row to another for a particular time of the year when it's one of the few things that will actually grow and I don't need to maximize my space? No, because they're two different components for two different reasons. So I hope that makes sense. Last, though, is wildlife identification. Say, how is that a gardening skill, knowing you know, whether that's a coarse's deer or uh, you know, just a regular whitetail? Um, I'm not talking about that kind of wildlife. Mostly what I'm talking about are birds and insects. If you don't know how to identify insects, you can make some really bad mistakes. Um, I, a book I'm going to recommend, and, and may, I'm gonna, hopefully I'm going to have Cam on very soon. Cam Mather has been on, on before. Great guy, uh, great, great modern survivalist, man. He lives really a lot off his own land. He's off the grid up in Canada, does a lot of his own growing. And he's got this great new book called the All-You-Can-Eat All Garden Book. I'll put a link uh, to Amazon on today's show notes. But he talks about how when he first started gardening out there, you find these evil-looking little worm guys, evil-looking little suckers. And every time he saw one, he would smash it and feel really good about it. And then one day he thought, maybe I should figure out what these things are. So he got a book, and he looks it up, and it turns out what he was killing were the larvae of ladybugs. Now, if you know anything about predator insects, one of the most amazing creatures you can have in your garden, one of the greatest things you could ever have as an ally is a ladybug. They eat so many pest insects, and here he was killing them because they looked evil. Um, the first time I ever saw a squash vine borer moth, I looked at it and went, that kind of looks like sort of like a wasp thing. I'm not really sure what it is. I don't know whether I should kill those things or not. When I looked it up, I realized it was one of the worst pests 
that if you grow squash vine, you could have you know any kind of squash, vining squash, or even like regular. They'll kill zucchini, they'll kill crookneck, they'll kill any squash out there. But the most resistant to, thing to them is butternut squash and some of the pumpkins. They don't seem to like those as much. But just about any other squash, man, they're just evil to. Well, I'm looking at this thing and wondering whether, and obviously that's one to take out. Learning to identify insects is important. The other thing is to learn to identify birds. So you can learn to identify birds that are insect predators. And when you see them using a particular type of habitat, then understand if I enhance that habitat, I'll get more of that type of bird, so I'll get more of that type of predation. So that's kind of the last one, and it's a little one, and it's not real complicated, but it does involve simply being observant. And every time you see something in your garden, Write a note about it. Take a picture of it. Do whatever. And look it up and find out what it is. Sometimes it's kind of hard. I've found things and like it takes forever to seemingly be able to find out what the hell this insect is. And you feel disappointed because when you find out, you're basically like it's a neutral insect. doesn't really matter. doesn't hurt anything. doesn't help anything. It's just some kind of a little fly or something. It doesn't pollinate. doesn't pest. It just it is what it is. But sometimes you find out, hey, I've got a really interesting predator here. Or I've got a very virulent pest and I need to take action against it right away. So the only way you're going to be able to do that, though, is if you start training yourself to look and identify. So when you go and you go, look at the cute little yellow and black bug. It kind of looks like a ladybug with stripes. That's a potato beetle. If you're growing potatoes, that's a bad thing. You don't really want those. So then you have to take the next step in the education process. What natural means are there to control potato bugs without dumping pesticide on my potatoes? What predators are particularly interested in eating potato beetles? What are they attracted to? I'll plant that next to my potatoes. But it all starts with being able to look at that little yellow and, yellow and black dude and go, hey, I know what he is. I don't like him. Colorado potato beetle. Bad news. It also has, you know, you also have to have that ability to look at something and go, Freaky looking little creature. If you've ever seen a ladybug larva, look one up online. Go to, go to Google and search for ladybug larva and click on images. And take a look at what they look like. They look like a little alien creature, like something on Star Trek. Maybe they drop in your ear to take over your mind or something. But they're a wonderful predator. So learn to identify these animals. And take all of this and put it together. Again, this is holistic, folks. This is not... My method is better than somebody else's method is better than somebody else's method. This is about understanding that plants grow. That's what they do. It's a natural process. And if we'll observe what enhances growth or detracts from growth, then we'll find the best solution for our area. Some of the things I do in Texas may not work very well in New England, and some of the things you do in New England may get my plants killed in Texas. Because you might think that full sun means full sun in New England, and you're right. And if I give my plants what's considered full sun by you in Texas, they will be scorched to the earth in July. When it's 117 degrees on the soil surface. You know, it might be 104. Stick a thermometer on the soil surface where the sun hits the soil or the sun hits the top bed of the mulch and see what it says in, you know, around July 27th, somewhere around that date in Dallas, Texas. It's unbelievable how hot that ground gets. And it, it damages your plant. So you have to plan some interim shade during the day where you might be trying to avoid it at all costs in a more northern climate. Adapt to your individual environment. Take these eight skills. Make them your own. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. And remember, there's a reason that sometimes when you tune into the Survival Podcast, it sounds like the gardening podcast. The one thing that we all need to be able to do fundamentally as individuals on a daily basis is feed ourselves. We eat every day. We don't fight every day, you know. We also need water and we need shelter. But those, that's, that's the trifecta. That's the big three. Food, shelter, water. If we have those, we can continue in the game. We can look for new opportunities. We can adapt, improvise, and overcome. Without those three, we're done. Water, pretty easy to take care of if you'll just think about it and put something in place. Shelter, you have or you don't. Food is something we've become all too dependent upon the supermarket, the convenience store, and the fast food restaurant for. And remember, a lot of the things that we're buying from there are some of the worst things that we could be putting into our bodies in today's modern age. There's a reason that cancer rates are higher today than they've ever been in history. It's not just because we can identify it as cancer. It's because people are getting it more often because of the chemicals and the pollutants and the stress that we're putting into our bodies. 
You have that garden. You control what goes into your body, and there's nothing less stressful than gardening. It really rejuvenates the spirit or the soul, depending on how you want to look at it. In fact, I'll tell you this. If more Americans would just plant a little garden, we would put the psychiatric business out of business. Because there wouldn't be anybody laying on a couch whining about their problems if they could just remember what the earth smells like and what a homegrown, sun-warm tomato tastes like. That'll solve a lot of what you perceive to be wrong with you. What's wrong with our society today isn't so much uh, really what's wrong. It's what we've lost connection with. We've lost connection with who and what we are. And gardening is one great way, just one great way, of the many to reconnect with that. And on that note, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.